0: I'm going to ask you to turn with me to an Old Testament book. It's in the Minor Prophets, the book of Haggai. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have been in church and you've heard the pastor say, let's open up to the book of Haggai. But Haggai is a great book. Haggai only has two chapters in it. But I'll tell you what, um, in these two chapters, there are a series of messages that are not only practical and timely for the people that they were first addressed to. But I'll tell you what, um, for you and me living in the 21st century, there's some really good practical stuff for us as well. So Haggai chapter 1. And I want to start this morning by just reading two verses. Haggai chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, and then we're going to pray. And then I want to share with you a message this morning that I've simply entitled, A Renewed Passion for God's Glory a renewed passion for God's glory. So Haggai chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. We read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it. And listen, And be glorified, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, again, I just want to thank you for Every person that's here, um, these are people that you have redeemed, and the thing that just blows our minds is to think you inhabit us by your Spirit. That, that to me, is just so mind-bending. Lord, your Word says that the heavens of heavens can't contain you, and yet you indwell us by your Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that as your Spirit is on mission to make all of us more like Jesus in this process called sanctification, and one of the means by which you are changing us is through the ministry of the Word of God, we pray that our hearts would be open, our ears would be attentive, and that you, by your Spirit, would bring understanding, clarity, and the power that we need to obey your Word. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, let me start our session today with an absolute, all right? And the absolute is God is all glorious. Are we all in agreement with that? God is all glorious. Now, the Old Testament uses the Hebrew word kabod. Maybe you've heard that word before, but in the Old Testament, when you see the English word glory, Oftentimes, the Hebrew word that's used is kabod, K-A-B-O-D, kabod. And it literally means weight. It means heaviness. And I love this word as we think about glory because God's glory speaks of the weightiness of his worth. And listen, we all need to remember that there is nothing light about God's character. There's nothing light about God's attributes. He is heavy in holiness. He is heavy in righteousness and love and in honor and majesty and in power and wealth, in truth and in justice, in mercy and grace. He is the all-glorious God, the kabod, the heaviness of his character and attributes. And listen, when the Bible speaks about the appearance of God's glory, it is the outshining of who he is. And because God is glorious, listen, he must be glorified. Because God is all-glorious, he must be glorified. That means that he is deserving of all praise and all honor. He deserves to be magnified and exalted above all things. Listen, only the uncreated, the all-glorious God is worthy of all glory, right? It would be theft. It would be robbery for any created something or someone to claim glory for himself. And so, listen to what God says to his people. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says... I am the Lord. This is Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. He also said in Leviticus 10, 3, by those who come near me, that's you, that's me, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all people, that's the nations of the world, I must be glorified. Wow. You see, God created all creation by his will and for his glory. And this includes you and me. In fact, the famous Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the response is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? So that means that we exist for God's glory. We were made for this. However you think about your purpose in life and for life, you need to understand, first and foremost, we were created for God's glory. In Isaiah 43, verse 7 It tells us that God formed us and made us and created us for his glory. But not only were we made for his glory, but listen, we were saved for his glory. We were saved for his glory. That is the ultimate goal of salvation, is the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, which is radical. Did you know that in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 is one continuous sentence? I love the fact that Paul majored on run-on sentences. And in this one sentence, Paul celebrates the fact that we have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And time and time and time again, Paul tells us in those verses, all of that happened to the praise of his glory. This means that our passion in life, Brent was talking about passion. This means that our passion in life should be to glorify God. And so that means that we need to have a context of what we mean by passion for God's glory. Listen, passion for God's glory is the strong, fervent desire to praise and honor, to magnify and exalt God in all things. It's simply to make much of him in our being and in our living. And so the New Testament makes this point in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now here's the thing though. There are, however, Lots of Christians in lots of different churches today who are passionless for God's glory, right? Instead of strong, fervent desire for God's glory, there's spiritual apathy. Now listen, spiritual apathy, number one, is impassive. Spiritual apathy is impassive. That means that there is a lack of feeling or emotion for God's glory. But spiritual apathy is not only impassive, it's also indifferent. Not only is there a lack of feeling or emotion for God's glory, but there's also a lack of interest or concern for God's glory. And listen, this was the condition of the Jews here in Haggai chapter 1 their attitude towards god's glory was impassive and indifferent god however wanted to change all that and he wants wanted to bring his people back to where they belong being and living with a passion for god's glory and so the message of haggai 1 is a renewed passion for god's glory so in haggai chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 This morning, we're first going to see the need for a renewed passion for God's glory. The need for a renewed passion for God's glory. And then in verses 12 through 15, we see the renewed passion for God's glory. So here we go, number one. In verses 1 through 11, we first see the need for a renewed passion for God's glory. This chapter opens in verse one with the words, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. So here there's a timestamp. And the timestamp is of September 1st, 520 BC on our calendars. September 1st, 520 BC. All right, so that's the timestamp, and we read, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, now listen to what God says to his people. This people says, the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So, there's obviously a backstory attached to these opening words. Now, here's the backstory that brings us to Haggai chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. The kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians and Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 586 BC. Now, The Jews, you remember, were deported from their homeland and they lived as exiles in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then in 539 B.C., Babylon fell to Cyrus the Great, the king of the Medes and the Persians. And then in 538 BC, King Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and to rebuild the temple. Now, according to Ezra, 50,000 Jews returned back to Jerusalem to the ruined site of the temple under the leadership of two guys, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, Zerubbabel, he was the governor of the Jewish people. That meant that he was their political leader. And Joshua was the high priest of the Jewish people. That means that he was their spiritual leader. Now, having returned, the Jews started working Um, on the rebuilding of God's house. In fact, Ezra tells us that they built an altar, they reinstated the sacrifices, and they kept the Feast of Tabernacles, and they laid the foundation. They were off to a great start. But not too long after the work began, Gentiles, these are non-Jews, Gentiles who had settled in Israel while the Jews were in captivity, they started to oppose this work. They came against the Jewish people with taunts and threats and political tactics. How did the Jews respond? Well, the Jews responded to their enemies with fear and surrender. And they left the work of rebuilding God's house, and it remained this way for 16 years. Wow. So over time, the mission of rebuilding God's house became a matter of inconvenience to God's people. When they first left the captivity to come back to Jerusalem, the mission of rebuilding God's house, man, they were passionate about doing God's work. But over time, passion turned into inconvenience. The great Bible teacher from Scotland, J. Sidlow Baxter, he commented, quote, the people were getting used to being without a temple and this would have proved fatal. Wow. And so in 520 B.C., God sent his prophet Haggai to his people to call them back to rebuilding his house. And this is where we pick up the story here in Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And again, listen to God's opening words to his people. They're in verse 2. This people says, so God is reiterating the general popular opinion of the day. What was the popular opinion of the day? Hey, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. You see, having left the work of rebuilding God's house, God's people directed their focus and attention on building their own homes. And doing the work of God was no longer a priority to them. It had become a matter of convenience, and it would be attended to only if it fit into their personal agendas and schedules. These people esteemed God's house as being less in worth than their own homes. And so for them, their personal well-being... Their personal well-being superseded God's honor and will in value and in importance. Wow. And so these people were in a bad place in their spiritual lives. They were impassive. They were indifferent toward the things that matter to God. Guys, really what was happening here? is itself became the center of their existence. Me, myself, and I, the trinity of stupidity. That became the center of their existence, and self-interest became the chief end of their lives. And so in verses 3 through 5, we read, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you? Your cells to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus is the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, mark those words, consider your ways. These words show up two times in Haggai 1. Once here and then again in verse 7. Now, these words, consider your ways, these words are a call to action. It means, Take a good, hard look at yourselves and see where you are and what you're doing. You see, God told them to do this so that they could see the truth about themselves as God saw them. They were not where God wanted them to be spiritually. And they were not doing what God wanted them to be doing as priority. You see, these people may have never considered their ways, right? I'm sure that if you were to ask these people, hey, is everything okay, they would all say, yeah, everything's fine. Everything's great. Look at my house. Look at the location. Look at my career. Everything is great. And they probably would have become so distracted by the externals that they would have never thought of their spiritual life as being a problem. And they may have never considered their ways if God didn't tell them to do it. And so this had to happen. God had to tell them to take a good, hard look at yourself, see what you've become, see what you're doing. He had to do this in order for the people to repent and to return back to God and to return back to the mission. And so in verse 2, the people had placed importance on their homes over God's house. And here in verses 3 and 4, God places the importance of his house over their homes. Now listen, the reason for the preeminence of God's house over ours is God's glory. Listen, the reason why God's passionate about his house is because he is passionate about his glory. Because he is glorified in and by his house. You see, in the Bible, we see the connection between God's glory and God's house. I think one of the best examples of this is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. In 2 Chronicles 7, verses 1 and 2, we read, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Listen, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. You see the connection between glory and house? You see, the real reason for God's command to rebuild his house was never about the building. The reason why God said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple, it was never about brick and mortar. It was all about God and God's glory. And this point is going to be restated in Haggai 1, verses 7 and 8. And the people had lost sight of this. So since the mission was no longer about God, guess what? God's work became small and meaningless to them. By neglecting God's house, these people demonstrated a carelessness for God's glory. Now, on the other hand, by diligently attending to their houses, they displayed a passion for self-glory. John Piper said this, quote, in our proud love affair with ourselves, we pour, P-O-U-R, we pour contempt, whether we know it or not, on the worth of God's glory. Selfishness, self-centeredness will always be an attack, rebellion, anarchy against the glory of God. That's why it's such a big deal. You see, the people were not being and they were not doing what God made and saved them to be and to do. And so as a result, see what God says next. In verse 6, he says, You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Now drop down to verse 9. In verse 9 through 11, it says, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew it. blew I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts, because of my house, that it is in ruins. Well, every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever. the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. What did God do to get the attention of these people? God sent a severe drought, a severe famine to their land to discipline his people and to get their attention. The physical condition of the land illustrated the spiritual condition of the people The people were spiritually dry. The people were spiritually barren. Listen, the people made the pursuit of satisfying their own needs and wants the master passion of their hearts. And in the end, however, the result was dissatisfaction and discontentment. They were spending their time and energy at sowing and eating and clothing and earning wages, but ended up with little harvest and more hunger and more thirst and no warmth and lost income. People who make it their aim in life to prioritize self-interest above God's honor will and work will always end up with dissatisfaction and discontentment. Why? Because God made us and saved us for his glory. And whenever we are not being and doing what he made and saved us for, we end up with a dissatisfied and discontent life. And so in verses 7 and 8, God says, "...consider your ways." Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be, there's that key word, glorified, says the Lord. There's a couple of things I want you to see here. Number one, first, see the command. See God's command in these two verses. He tells him, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. This is a command to return to the mission of of gathering the building materials and rebuilding God's temple there in Jerusalem. But next, I want you to see God's reason for his command. He says that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. You see, God wanted his house rebuilt so he can be glorified by it. Now, how does God's temple, how does God's house glorify God on earth? Well, number one, this is where God's people would gather to worship him. Why is God's house a big deal? Because this was the physical location on planet earth. While we are here as ambassadors of King Jesus, while we are still waiting for our homecoming to happen, We gather in these physical, geographical locations called local churches. These are outposts of God's kingdom. These are like consulates. These are embassies on earth where King Jesus rules and reigns. And we represent King Jesus and we gather together and we glorify God on planet earth. God's house is a big deal. But also this is where Gentiles could come to learn about God and be converted into God-fearers, into God-worshippers. This is the reason why Jesus was so upset when they saw how the religious leaders had merchandised the outer court of the temple. The outer court is called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was to be a Gentile's first point of contact, his introduction to the God of the people of Israel, the one true God. And as these Gentile seekers walked in, what was their first impression of the God that the Jews were worshiping? You know what their first impression was? All God cares about is your wallet. And God is content with, Worship that is driven by hypocrisy. And Jesus saw this and he was incensed because that is not the God that unbelievers are supposed to be introduced to. That was a defaming of God's glory, not a radiating of it. But number three, the reason why the house of God is so important is because God declared that his house would be a house of prayer for all nations, not just for a select group of people, this little nice little social club that we, we, we might assemble together. No, this is to have open doors for all nations to be able to come inside and say, you know what, I can meet God here. As long as the people were not prioritizing God's house, that was not happening in Jerusalem. The aim and goal of this mission is God's glory. And this was a call to a renewed passion for God's glory. So listen, here's the application. Consider your ways. Listen, God's spirit is telling us to consider our ways today. You know, as you've been listening to God's message to his people in 520 BC, what has he been saying to you personally today? You know, For me, man, I'll tell you, I need to humble myself and allow God's Spirit to show me the truth about me by the mirror of his word. And so as I sat down to prepare this message in considering my ways, I found that I need to ask myself the following questions. God says, consider your ways. So for me, Here's the list I came up with as I was considering my ways. Am I being who God wants me to be today? Am I doing what God wants me to be doing today? Do I esteem my self-interests above God's? Has doing what God wants me to do become a matter of convenience instead of priority? Do I care more more about what people think about me than making much of God before others? Has my love for God become cold, my worship passionless, and my obedience fickle? In the Old Testament, God's temple was a building. In the New Testament, God's temple is his people. Understanding this, do I care about God's people or have I become okay with being disconnected and disengaged from them? Does God's mission of reaching lost people with the gospel for the glory of his name still matter to me, or have I become content to let non Christians pass me by without hearing God's saving message? Am I faithful to be and do what I believe is God's call upon my life, or have I derailed from it and over time drifted farther and farther away from God's purpose for my life? Do my material possessions matter more to me than God's eternal kingdom? Do I tolerate and make allowances for sin or do I daily fight against it by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God's name? Do I have a passion for God's glory or am I in need of a renewed passion for God's glory? That was a list that I wrote down as I was considering my ways. And so listen, the application, we, let's humble. Let's be humble and receptive to all that God is showing us right now about our spiritual condition. And let's be quick to repent of sin and let's return to him by faith as our active response to his grace towards us. Because listen to God's promise in 2 Chronicles 7.14. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, God says, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. But guys, we can't end our time together there. Listen, the story gets better. It it doesn't end with a dark cloud hanging over us here in Haggai 1. The story does get better. So verses 1 through 11, we see that there was a need for renewed passion for God's glory. But then in verses 12 through 15, we see that a renewed passion for God's glory happened. Revival happened among God's people. God's people heard Haggai's message and they returned to God. They returned to God's mission. And God, God renewed a passion for his glory within and among his people by sending them real spiritual revival. Real spiritual revival. Listen, when we, when we use the word revival, the word revival means to bring back to life. One person described spiritual revival as a visitation from God. A visitation from God resulting in a fresh sense of his presence, power, and love. I mean, this conference is called the Refresh Conference. And isn't that what we all want is a fresh sense of God's presence, power, and love. If you can feel that in your heart, If that desire is there and you can recognize it, that is a cry, that is a plea to God for revival, personal revival. Listen, spiritual revival happens among God's people, and when it happens, it impacts non-believers. So, believers are revived, non-Christians are awakened. So what the church needs is spiritual revival. What our nation needs is spiritual awakening. But spiritual awakening happens when spiritual revival happens in the church. So that's why the two go hand in hand. So here's the practical question. What did God do? How was this displayed? How do we see spiritual revival showing up among God's people? I am so glad you asked that question. You guys are some of the brightest, smartest people because you always ask the right questions. You see, what God did within them became evident through them. And we see this in Haggai 1, verses 12 through 15. So when the people were spiritually revived, what did that look like? Number one, there was a renewed obedience to the word of God. There was a renewed obedience to the word of God. In verse 12, we read, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Zach, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, listen, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God sent him. They heard the word and they obeyed it. In Psalm 19, verse 7. In Psalm 19, verse 7, I like the way that I like the way the English Standard Version puts it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's spirit revived his people through the preaching of God's word. And and I want you to see here that God sent his prophet Haggai to declare his word and God's people, they listened and they responded to it. Why? Because in times of revival, God sends his messengers and a clear prophetic voice is heard in the church again. A voice proclaiming God's word by God's spirit in God's power that gets the attention of God's people. It just seems like now more than ever I am hearing all this chatter within all the church, churchianity chat rooms saying, you know what, churches need less preaching and more activities, churches need less doctrine. And more dances. Churches need less and less and less of God's word and more and more and more of social activities. That is not in God's economy of how He moves among His people. Now, more than ever, we don't need less preaching, we don't need less teaching, we need more. Because in times of revival, God sends his messengers and a clear prophetic voice is heard in the church, again, a voice proclaiming God's word by God's spirit and God's power that gets the attention of God's people and see here that God's people, they heard God's word, they received God's word, they responded to God's word with a renewed faith and a renewed obedience and this is what it always looks like in time, of spiritual revival. But secondly... Not only was there a renewed obedience to the word of God, but secondly, there was a renewed awe and reverence for God. There was a renewed awe and reverence for God. In verse 12, it says, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. In revivals, there is always a renewed awe and reverence for God. God's people no longer settle for small views of God. They start esteeming him as being big and great and making much of him again. Just look at the story of the church. Read the accounts of all the revivals. In fact, it's When you read the stories of revival, we see that it was a common thing that happened where the hymns of praise and songs of worship were written and sung during these times of real spiritual revival. In fact, it was in the times of revival that we see that the church cannot and does not remain silent. During times of revival, the church has a voice again. During the times of revival, you can hear the sounds of real, passionate praise and worship. It's all heard. Again, the church is no longer mute. The church has a voice again. And she reflects the words of Psalm 45, verse 1, when the psalmist said, My heart overflows with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Case in point, it was during a time of revival and spiritual awakening in Great Britain that men like Charles Wesley... Man, their tongues were loosed and their hands were free, and Charles Wesley could write these words, Jesus, the name high over all in hell or earth and sky, angels and mortals prostrate fall and devils fear and fly. Jesus, the name to sinners dear, the name to sinners given, it scatters all their guilty fear, it turns their hell to heaven. Oh, that the world might taste and see the riches of his grace, the arms of love that compass me, Would all the world embrace. Thee I shall constantly proclaim, though earth and hell oppose, bold to confess thy glorious name before a world of foes. His only righteousness I show, his saving truth proclaim, tis all my business here below, to cry, behold the Lamb, happy if with my last breath, I may but gasp his name, preach him to all and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. Where do you hear the church sounding like that? That is the vernacular of the church. That is the voice of the church. But you'll never hear it as long as the church is more interested in their own home than about God's glory and listen when awe and reverence for God is renewed among God's people not only does it give the church a voice but it also impacts the non-Christians around them right Revivals are times when the church glorifies and magnifies Christ and the gospel again, and l- large numbers of non-believers hear and see and turn to Christ by faith. Acts nine thirty one tells us this. I love this. Acts nine thirty one tells us that as the church was quote walking in the fear of the Lord, that's worship and reverence as they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, listen, they were multiplied. The church does not need more programs. The church needs to hear more praise. Your programs might get people through the front door, but they'll all walk out the back door. But when non-believers walk through the front door because they see and hear how great and glorious and mighty our God is, they'll come in out of curiosity through the front door, but when they encounter the real Jesus, they'll stay. Number three, not only was there a renewed obedience to the word of God and a renewed awe and um, worship of God, but listen, there was a renewed sense of the nearness of God a renewed sense of the nearness of God. In verse 13, we read, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. There were no sweeter words for God's people that were living in spiritual drought to hear, because the spiritual drought is now officially over. God's presence is known and felt once again. You see, the people were experiencing a visitation from God resulting in a fresh sense of presence, power, and love. Maybe some of you feel like there is drought. Now, sometimes the Lord will allow us to go through desert seasons because he wants to teach us how to walk by faith and not by sight. So it's not so much a reason or a cause due to sin. God's just teaching us how to walk. But then there are other times where the reason why the drought is there is because it's about me. It's about my will, my glory. I'll tell you, when Jesus becomes supplemental rather than essential, drought happens. When Jesus becomes your back pocket Jesus that you only pull out when it's convenient, or when you only pull out when you're in need, there will be drought. Jesus will not allow himself to become anybody's back pocket savior. He's the king. He's the Lord. And there is only one place that rightfully should be where he is seated, and that is on a throne high and lifted up and enthroned on the praises of his people. Once the people got there, the drought was over. They can sense his presence again. And maybe this morning, God wants you to hear those words too. The drought's over. Turn back to me. And remember what The book of Acts chapter 4 says that when we turn to God by faith, that times of refreshing will come to us from the presence of the Lord. And here's the fourth and final thing that happened during the time of revival. There was a renewed zeal for the work of God. There was a renewed zeal for the work of God. In verses 14 and 15 we read, so the Lord stood. Up. I like how the New Living Translation translates it. The Lord sparked enthusiasm. I love that. The Lord sparked enthusiasm. He stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and listened to what they did. And they came and worked on The house. Whose house? God's house. On the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. God's people demonstrated a renewed passion for God's glory by finishing the work of God's house in the power of God's spirit because that's how it was going to be done. God, through the contemporary of Haggai, Zechariah, because those were the two prophets that God sent to Israel at this time, Zechariah and Haggai. As Haggai was preaching this, Zechariah was also preaching. And in Zechariah 4.4, Zechariah informed Zerubbabel how God was going to use the people to rebuild the house. He said, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And then after he said that, then he says to this mountain of rubble. You see, when Zerubbabel came back to Jerusalem and he knew that God told him, hey, I want you to rebuild my house, he comes to Jerusalem and you know what he sees? He sees a city that is completely obliterated and there is a mountain of rubble and Zerubbabel was overwhelmed by it and he's thinking, how do I take that mountain and make that into a house? And sometimes we feel a bit overwhelmed that way, right? Like Jesus tells us to go into all the nation, into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples. All of a sudden we're thinking, how? We're just, we're like just a little handful of people. Like, well, like what dent can we make? Like, what can we do? And so we look at the enormity of the task in front of us and we're thinking, how do we remove this mountain? But you know what? That's not our mountain to move. Because after God said to Zerubbabel, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit to the Lord, then it's the Lord who then addresses the mountain, and God says, who are you, O mountain? Talking about that mountain of rubble, rubble, that giant obstacle, he says, who are you, O mountain? I am going to level you before the presence of Zerubbabel. And when they take that last stone from that mountain of rubble and they take that last stone and they put it into the temple and it's completed, all the people will shout grace, grace. Because didn't Jesus say, upon this rock, I will build my church. And you and I, we get to participate in that glorious work the weight, the burden is not on us. It's on Jesus, the church builder. And we start with our local church. You start looking at your Joshua and your Zerubbabel. You know who your Joshua's and Zerubbabel are here in this part of Canada? You got Michael. You got Matt. They're your Joshua's. They're your Zerubbables. And they have the task of looking at you as Peter calls each and every one of us living stones. And they have the task of seeing how God is assembling one stone and connecting it with the stone that's sitting right next to them or behind them or in front of them. And and their vision is to see God building a house here in this part of Canada on the Sunshine Coast. But I'll tell you what, sometimes the way that bricks are, sometimes the way that stones are, living stones are, sometimes Zerubbabel and Joshua can look at the work and say, this is a mountain. gosh lord it just seems like our church is nothing but a revolving door people come in people come out it just seems like people can never be happy they're never satisfied it's like i'm I'm preaching the word but it's like they want something more than the word they want less than the word they want more this and everybody's got an opinion they don't like the paint color they don't like the food that we're serving and and it's just lord i this is a mountain i don't know how to do this and god says hey joshua Zerubbabel, michael matt mellow out and then god looks at the mountain and says who are you on mountain I'm going to level you before the presence of Michael and Matt. And then all the people are going to get back to the work and they're all going to be shouting grace, 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 grace. Because all the people are going to look back at these two churches represented here and say, look at what King Jesus did. Revivals are times when self-interest is replaced by a passion for doing God's work and God's will, because real revivals are marked by passionate devotion and service toward God and God's work among God's people. So in closing, here's the application. Just like the audience in 520 BC, would you agree that we also, we need to hear and respond to this message today? You see, I believe that God wants to revive his church. I believe that God wants to renew a passion for his glory in us. And I believe that God's spirit wants to move in Canada and in the United States of America with saving power and to bring a spiritual awakening to the people of the land. But it must all start here among us, with us, among God's people. Someone once asked Gypsy Smith, what he could do to start a revival. Gypsy Smith responded, quote, go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. In other words... You pray that God will revive you, and then revival will be on. I love how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the well-known pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, he described revival as when a whole bunch of people are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they all get together. Let's aim to glorify God every day, everywhere. And let's shine with a real passion for God's glory by God's Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.